Hey there, guys and gals, it's me, El Capitan Muerte himself, Captain Death, here to tell you guys about an exciting new announcement I have that I'm going to put online here for a couple of the episodes. We have a new merch store up on redbubble.com, www.redbubble.com, backslash people, backslash El Capitan Muerte. Uh, you know, buy a sticker. It's like three bucks. Have have fun. You know, you do you. Uh, anyways, uh, moving on to the show. Uh, thank you all so much for your patronage, and stay spoopy. I gotta be honest, I'm like really tired, <laughs> but I I want to read this more than I want to sleep. <laughs> so I think this takes priority. That's one thing I hope, you know, after we die, that we can read. <laughs> I would like to read. I'd like to be able to read. You know, that would be nice. Hey, perhaps. You know, there's some alien literature out there that I'm, I'm missing. Oh, alien literature, you say. I, uh... Of the pornographic variety. <laughs> <laughs> Tentacles. <laughs> That's fun. That's a fun one. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> oh, I, um... I don't... <laughs> I don't know how to intro the show right now. <laughs> this is the intro. Welcome to the show. This is episode 141, part three of our Spire in the Woods, uh, we're the series read. That's, that's what we're doing. Yeah. And, uh, whoosh, um... Yep, so there's a kid in high school, His, uh, a friend of a friend dies, there's a fire, mysterious surroundings of the death, so linking back to an urban legend about a clockmaker who murdered his unfaithful wife and lover, apparently these bells ring every once in a while and Hold on, Captain. <laughs> Hold on. I gotta stop you right there. Great. I'm worried for your health. I, I, I am too. <laughs> I'm going to ask that the audience joins us. We're not actually going to do it. I'm just doing this for fun. I'm going to ask the audience joins us in a, in a quick warm-up session. We're going to stand up. <laughs> we're going to do some nice stretching. And we're going to extend downwards real slowly. Breathe in. Breathe out. And in this, we find meaning. So I think we can jump right into it now. Oh, I feel more tired. Made things worse. Spire <laughs> in the Woods, uh, no sleep series, um, spooky, I hope it's ghosts. We don't know how people are dying yet so Psychological far. Psychological ghosts. Yeah, it's one of those fun. I think if they got to the Spire and there was not like a spooky animatronic inside, <laughs> I would almost be like upset. 
So I'm hoping it has, like, a haunting effect. Like, they just start seeing, like, the wife showing up everywhere, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. they accidentally touch it, and it imprints on them of terror varieties and uh, drives them to suicide. I I would love a final destination for the rest of this story. Like, each of the kids that, you know, gazes on her one by one just start to get picked off. We don't... How much... We don't have much left. We... This is the midway. This is midway point. This is uh, okay. this is gonna be parts five and six. If you're reading, if you've read the story online before, this is midway point. There are gonna be two more episodes after this one, so it's a five part series. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only ten parts long, so we've been reading two parts an episode, which is pretty good. Is there anything y- you wanted to talk about? Because I remember you weren't particularly thrilled with the last part, because it seemed like the only thing the narrator was doing oh, was the, trying to get into the pants it of, was, the, it was, uh, of the girl who, you know... I was critical of that. <laughs> but I was critical of it because I'm I'm seeing that that's the focus, or that, that I feel like that's been... Um, I don't know. I, I feel like... I'm not interested in this main character. He hasn't done much... Honestly, I think um, I like Scary Carrie and his friend. I think sure. it's Fletch. Yeah, Fletch. I like Scary I li- Carrie. I like Scary Carrie and Fletch a little bit more. It's almost like the supporting characters are more colorful to take away from how vanilla the main character is. They're making he's the very world like every man. He's very like I'm a teenager boy. I'm interested in boobs, but I also have weird friends. And he's also he's also kind of smart. Because, you know how I, t- I can tell, because he's manipulative. He's very manipulative. So. We did talk about that last time. I think there's an innocence to his manipulation, because, like, I'd be lying if I wasn't exactly fucking like him in high school, just, like, talking to girls and telling them they're pretty and yeah. having them cry on my shoulder about I'll, their boyfriends only to end up, like, making out with them I'll back. I'll back up a little, so... It isn't that necessarily his his the quality of his character, meaning his characteristics that sure. bother me. It's it's that they seem to be either taking away from they're taking away from my interest in the story. Absolutely, because they're sidelining us with high school drama bullshit when we should be getting enraptured in a ghost epic. Yeah. So it is a little. I I think every context, every story is deserved of its context. I think sure. that's what it's providing right now. Um, so uh, yeah, this is good point. This, but but I agree with you because this is the stepping stone. If we do not get somewhere, and I remember saying this last time, if we do not get somewhere by the end of this episode, then this author is pandering. This author yep. is really biding their time because they probably only had like like the re- like if this was filler. Sure. If this just turns out to be more filler and the climax doesn't come until like part 8, I'm going to be pissed. Yeah. Because like we need to get the haunting started now. It's, it's at the right spot. They all agreed yep. that they're going to go find the spire. This mystical spire that they're not sure existed, but killed the the kid. Yeah, because you know, we've um, only heard secondary stories about the spire We've so heard, far. like, three weird tales about it. Mm-hmm. And um, the the last event was of the, the best friend who took the kid out there. Fletch. Fletch. Fletch and his friend? Brother? No, Fletch took Rob. 
the kid who's dead. Rob Kennan. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, Rob, uh, he's the one who's dead. Uh, he's the one who, they both went out swimming together to mm-hmm. the, to the island, and then Fletch couldn't buck it, so he turned around and went back and fell asleep waiting for Rob to show back up. That's right. And when Rob showed back up, he was, like, crazy. He was like, we have to get out of here. And okay. so Fletch drove them out of there, you know, 0 to 60 and 3.5. But the main character has just been doing research on the spooky tales, which is what I was saying earlier about the uh, the clockmaker and his unfaithful wife. But then Scary Carrie told a different version that put the clockmaker's wife in a bit of a lighter yeah. tone. That they, they implied that the clockmaker was like 30 or 40 years older than her, was very abusive, um, forced her to have children with him, and she was actually in love with this other guy. It was not just some random dude who mm-hmm. she slept with to say fuck you to her husband. Um, so it's a very gray area so far, um, but I'm hoping that Rob Kennan, they, they always said that it didn't look like he was alone in the car, so I'm hoping that this woman is like a woman in black. Like, you know, yeah. you, you see you see this... Uh, this ghostly woman who was wrongly killed and she just kind of haunts you for the rest of your life. I think that would be dope. Um, because she's like part animatronic. It's very, um, it's very five nights at Freddy's almost because of the whole animatronic dead wife. I know. I want to watch more of that. I thought when you showed, you showed me that. Yeah. We were watching Markiplier play, uh, five nights at Freddy's. If you like that, we could watch more of it after this because (laughs) I I always love watching Markiplier play five, five nights. Um, the lore is so rich about how, um, how that shit went down. It's almost like, uh, a no sleep story in itself. Um, but yeah, this, uh, this clockmaker had his, uh, his wife and his lover kind of come out and ding the bell at noon every day and people loved watching it happen but apparently the body started to like deteriorate and people became aware that it wasn't just animatronics it was like <laughs> actually his missing wife and her lover which I thought is just absolutely haunting you know ab- above all no sleep stories need to enthrall me like yeah. I need to I need to be asking questions and being entertained by the answers like um, I thought Tommy Taffy was probably the last thing that wowed me, but it it did this thing where it overshared. It almost made the enemy, Tommy, mm-hmm. sound more humane, um, or perhaps more supernatural, depending on which way you're going to go. Um, and I thought that was overstepping. Like, don't explain the monster too much. Um, and I'm hoping that's what happens, because, like... You were. I, I remember talking to you about Woman in Black, and I remember saying that I like, you know, I like that movie, the the remake with Daniel Radcliffe, because it's just like <laughs> he spends the entire movie saying like, "Oh, you were wronged. Let me let me unwrong you. Let me mm-hmm. find your kid that drove you to you know insane. Let me let me find his body so you can finally rest." And he does after being haunted and having kids in town murdered night after night, and. At the end, you're like, oh, then he's he's going to have a happily ever after because he helped this woman in black. But the woman in black ends up killing her son and then killing him. And it's just like, no one who looks on the woman in black fucking survives. And there is no 
rhyme or reason. There is no winning. There is only losing. This is a vengeful spirit. You are fucked. It's very like the grudge. <laughs> like what's the, the grudge? The Japanese one with the uh, wow. and the hair. You've never seen the grudge? No. Are you fucking serious? Yeah. You don't even know what I'm talking about. No. Oh no. God. I'm surprised you've never seen the. You don't even know the image. I might. Wait a minute. Like this shit? Never saw it. Wow. Never saw it. Japanese uh, horror movie. Basically, um, some children were... uh, A family was killed. I think it was a wife and son. Were killed... um, By a... uh, Like a jealous ex-husband or a jealous lover of some kind. Mm -hmm. And um, they basically... Anyone who enters the house, whether it's to investigate the murders are just to live there. Mm-hmm. Like you'll get fucking haunted. And, um, it seems to kill randomly throughout the movie series. Cause there are just some people who get ganked immediately. That's a fun scene from the third one. And then there are some characters that seem to just survive through everything, despite how much like investigating they're uh-huh. trying to do, but no one lives. And that's like the best part is like, you enter this house, you die. Like, you come to this spot on the on the world where only bad things have happened. You will get haunted. You will be killed. Like, the Japanese are very, like... It, it reads as very traditional. A lot of people say that the, um, the way that the grudge, like, looks and acts is very similar to, like, the spirit in Dead by Daylight. Okay. Almost like that's inspired by the grudge. Um, very, uh very cool kind of revenge, vengeful spirit, you know? So I'm hoping that this is that, you know? Woman in Black is the very UK version of of what I want, and the grudge is very Japanese of what I want, but I want vengeful spirit, like, make it happen. Because I'm playing this entire thing like a movie in my head. Ever since last time that I, I brought up that Spielberg is kind of developing, like, producing a, a version of this for film... I'm just imagining it as this fucking horrifying thing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really like it. And I hope they fucking hurry up with that movie, and I hope it's faithful. Because this just sounds enticing for me. I love I love the uh, the tower in the middle of the woods. You know, that, that type of weird imagery. Yeah. Alright, so this is going to be Spire in the Woods. This could be the start of part five. Uh, we're doing two parts today. So, uh, I guess we'll take it away. What's with the bag? Fletch asked as I tossed my duffel bag onto the back seat and got inside his car. If memory serves, it had been 25 or so that day. Felt even colder in the little Civic. Supplies. Incense. My mom's Bible. A couple flashlights. Some uh, miscellaneous crap I borrowed from Carrie. Fletch acknowledged he'd heard me with a soft grunt, and we were on our way to pick up Scary Carrie. Truth be told, while the bag did have my mother's Bible and the flashlights, the miscellaneous crap I borrowed from Carrie was actually a bicycle pump and a pool raft shaped like a small boat that I'd borrowed from Christy McDowell earlier that day. I didn't see the sense in telling Fletch yet that I wanted to do more than just hear the bells. At least not while we were still in my driveway and he could back out better to wait until we were down there, and the worst he could do was leave us without a ride home. We grabbed Carrie and were properly on our way shortly after 8 o'clock. 
For the first hour or so, the drive was surprisingly pleasant. Carrie asked Fletch questions about where he was hoping to go to college, which schools were his safeties, and how he was going to pay for it. And Fletch answered all of her questions, and was even joking around a bit. But as we got deeper into Massachusetts, his nerves started to creep in. He fell silent around the time we cleared Worcester. It didn't take a mind reader to know he was thinking about Rob. It was impossible not to. We were retracing the steps of a boy who had killed himself. Whatever he'd found down there, whether it was supernatural or not, whether it was something or nothing, Rob blamed it for driving him to madness and death. Dope. I had never been scared on any of my other ghost hunting trips. Not really. Usually I was filled with a sense of anticipation. A giddy feeling that I could soon make a discovery that would forever change the way I saw the whole world. Accompanied by a touch of anxiety that I might get caught trespassing somewhere I didn't belong. But as we pulled into the trailer park, my heart was pounding in my chest and my palms were covered in cold sweat. 10.13, Fletch said, cutting the engine. If we hustle, we might be able to hear the bells toll 11. Carrie and I nodded dumbly. I could tell she was feeling it too. This was different than the Blood Cemetery or the Eunice Williams Covered Bridge. We were walking into the ghost story of Robert Edward Kennan, and the only thing we knew for certain was that he was dead. Pass me my bag, I said to Carrie as we stepped out of the car. Fletch wordlessly led the way. The crunch of the dead leaves beneath our feet echoed out into the forest. Even though the moon cast more than enough light for us to see, I fished the flashlights out of my bag and just to have something to do. It hadn't snowed yet that year, not at, at least not at Quabbin, but it was cold. The temperature had dropped into the high teens and the wind dripping through bare trees wasn't helping many matters any. It was no surprise we didn't see anyone as we crossed into the park. We were in the middle of nowhere. Hell, if it weren't for the metal pole that served as a gate stretch across Old Ware Enfield Road, we probably could have driven in without anyone noticing. The smell of wood smoke hung faintly on the wind. Somewhere miles away, people were sitting around their fireplace, probably commenting on what a good night it was for a fire. I bet they felt cozy. I wanted to... That reminded me. So Massachusetts, like, even Boston, like, uh, Lovecraft wrote all of his stuff about Massachusetts, basically. Okay. Um, and uh, Enfield is where he writes about, like, a monster. Oh. So, like, there's a very madness thing about this story, and that's a very Lovecraftian thing about this story. Okay. So when you brought up Massachusetts, I wanted to be like, huh. And this has been Captain's Workshop on Horror. Do Lovecraft things. He was good, but he was also racist. Take out the racist part, and you could be good, too. <laughs> Fletch rubbed his nose and sniffed. Sorry, folks, I can't read tonight. Something's wrong with me. You've been fine. Fletch rubbed his nose and sniffled. He didn't sniff. <laughs> he didn't sniff. Sniffled. He sniffed. He sniffled. <laughs> Do you sniffled, Cap? Do you sniffled? Sniffled a lot of things. I say, I haven't had a good sniffled in a while. Okay, so Fletch rubbed his nose and sniffled. <laughs> you know what? Sniffled, fuck it. <laughs> it could have just been the cold making his nose run a little. Maybe he smelled smoke too. 
Either way, it reminded me of something I'd read once. Firemen say that when a person burns to death, their flesh smells like pork. I've heard that too. Yum. I fucking love bacon, dude. Uh, yeah, that's good. Sorry, I was just eating some pork. <laughs> or was I? Anyway, I pitied Fletch. Thank God I hadn't been there to smell raw burn. By the time we reached the fork where the access road splits off from Old Ware Enfield, my legs felt like blocks of ice. We hadn't been stupid. We had warm hats and jackets, but a two, two and a half mile walk at night in late December is too much for just a pair of jeans. I stomped my feet to warm up. Ah, what I wouldn't give for some ski pants. At least you brought gloves, Carrie said. She had one hand buried deep in her coat pocket, the other holding the flashlight I'd given her with her sleeve pulled down over her fingers. Fletch cast a baleful eye in our direction, even though we hadn't been particularly loud or said anything disrespectful. He looked at us as if he'd caught us dancing on Rob's grave. As far as Fletch was concerned, we were on hallowed ground. We pressed on in silence until, from just ahead of us, we heard whispering gently through the trees. It sounded vaguely like the Friday the 13th soundtrack. <laughs> oh, that's good. It sounded vaguely like the Friday the 13th soundtrack was being carried on the wind across a great distance. What the hell's that? Carrie hissed. Ice. Ice makes noise? Yup. People think of ice as an object, solid and inert, but ice expands and contracts a great deal. Slight variations in temperature, small eddies, and imperceptible currents prevent the water from freezing uniformly. Little fissures turn into big cracks as the ice strains against itself until it buckles and splinters into plates. What we were hearing was like the continental drift in miniature big ice plates pressing against each other until something snapped with the resulting sound echoing over the reservoir's frozen surface. We cleared the tree line, and sure enough, the quabbin was frozen. I was surprised. Bodies of water as big as the quabbin don't usually freeze until mid-January or so. Guess we won't be needing the raft, I thought. That's when the bells chimed eleven. Bliss. My body shuddered. I felt like I was beneath Alina, her weight pressing down on the parts of me that strained to meet her. My flesh tingled. It was as if the smooth skin of her back that my fingertips had danced lightly across now surrounded every inch of me. I'm sorry, did they have sex? No. Did I miss that? No. He touched a boob. Oh, yes. And they made out a little. That's right. And he reached for her pants, and she was like, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, this kid. In that lingering moment, I was sated. The bells had nourished me like a feast of like a feast nourishes the starving. Okay, I wanted nothing but to be exactly where I was, hearing exactly what I was hearing, feeling exactly what I was feeling. And then all was silence. I was once more out in the cold. I heard them. Carrie breathed. I turned to her and saw that she had a wistful gleam in her. It was the first and last time I ever saw her truly happy. Fletch fell to his knees, tears rolling down his cheeks. Oh my god. He said. Oh my god. He was laboring to breathe. That was... That was beautiful. I sat down beside him, 
The dirt beneath us was hard as rock. The echo coming off the ice sounded like a gentle tide lapping on the shore. I looked up at the sky. So far away from the light pollution of Nashua or Boston or Lowell, I could see a myriad of stars I had never noticed before. It's the sort of thing that makes some feel small, but not me. I just peeked behind reality's veil and discovered. Well, I didn't know exactly what, just that there was more. Not up there around distant stars suspended on the far side of an unfathomably great abyss, but right here, with nothing between us and this undiscovered country but a few hundred yards of ice in an hour's time, when the bells would toll twelve. We should have left. We said we only wanted to hear the bells. The only reason Fletch was even there was to make sure we turned back. I had witnessed what I'd been searching for throughout all of my ghost hunts. I had evidence of the supernatural. Wasn't that all I'd ever wanted? One experience to bolster my faith? Just one that I could point to, cling to, whenever I found myself besieged by doubt? I had certainly thought so, until I heard those goddamn bells. I'm not sure which one of us was the first to tentatively step onto the ice, but I recall clearly none of us voiced an objection. Not even Fletch. The ice was slick, and we fell hard more than once, but we were all, all of us New Englanders and no strangers to shuffling across an expanse of ice. The trick was to keep your weight centered above your feet. We talked in clipped bursts about what the bells had felt like to us, speaking in broken analogies, unable to fully share what the bells had awoken inside of us, but straining to convey it as best we could. I only ever flew in a plane once. My parents, even though they couldn't really afford it, took me to Disney. They were already fighting then, it was bad. But on the plane, going to Disney, when it started to take off... Carrie uh, trailed off. The echo was louder than we had heard from the shore. In my head, when I was seven, only rich people flew anywhere, and my parents weren't fighting. I felt lucky, you know? Fletch grunted his acknowledgement. What time is it? I checked my watch. About a quarter past. <coughs> it must have been right on top of where the ice was grinding against itself. We froze. Each of us strained our eyes and ears, trying to determine if the ice was safe. We knew if the ice wasn't safe, it'd be dangerous to press on. We knew it, but we didn't care. Maybe you should go first. Fletch said to me. You're the lightest. Yeah, I said and shuffled ahead. Being closer to the bells felt worth the risk. Any risk. Carrie and Fletch followed in my wake. Neither following directly behind me so as to spread our weight across a broader area. We pressed on. The conversation died. The wind blew hard across the reservoir and tore through our clothes like a knife. We didn't care. <coughs> the sound was growing fainter. We had crossed nearly three quarters of the distance to the island that housed the spire. I never heard the ice crack, just the sharp inhalation of breath for a scream that had never escaped her lips. Carrie plunged through the ice. I turned just in time to see her head go under. Carrie came up thrashing, but as she hit the sides of the hole she'd made, more and more of the ice broke away, expanding the hole to the size of a kiddie pool. I shuffled my feet as fast as I could towards the edge, 
Fletch screams for me to stop. No, no, it's not stable. Cold water sucks the heat from your body 32 times faster than air. Every second Carrie stayed in that water increased the likelihood her arms and legs would go numb and she wouldn't be able to pull herself out of the water, even if the ice stopped breaking. Laying on my stomach to spread as much of my weight across the surface as I could, I dragged myself out to the water's edge. Grab on! I held onto the shoulder strap and tossed my duffel bag into the water as close to Carrie as I could. Her hands fumbled, already rendered useless from the heat loss, but she managed to wrap her arms tight around the bulk of the bag. I pulled her up to the edge. She got most of her body out of the water before the ice cracked, and she fell back in, almost taking me with her. Strong hands grabbed my ankles and pulled me away from the hole. Fuck, fuck, fuck! Fletch grunted as he struggled for traction on the ice. I don't know how he did it, but Fletch managed to get enough of a, of a purchase that we were able to drag Carrie out of the water. Scary Carrie was white as a bone and panting for breath through chattering teeth. She struggled to get her hands and knees, to get, to get to her hands and knees. We've got to get her out of here, Fletch said. The pull of the bells had been broken. What the fuck had we been thinking? Bring the car around, we'll meet you. The car was easily two miles away. Fletch nodded and was off, shuffling his feet across the ice as quickly as he could. I was afraid to stand too close to Carrie out on the ice, but what choice did I have? She was still struggling just to crawl. I grabbed her by her ankles and dragged her across until we were far enough away from the hole that I felt comfortable enough to pull her to her feet. Still, the ice went as I watched Fletch slip out of sight behind the trees. It didn't sound gentle anymore. I put her arm around my shoulder, and we shuffled along best we could. Each time one of us slipped, I thought the ice had given out again. My heart would race and I'd think, this is it, this is how I'm gonna die. But instead, we would just be slammed down against the rock-hard surface. Carrie followed my instructions. She didn't seem confused, but she wasn't talking either. By the time we'd reached the access road, her lips had turned pale blue, and the water in her hair had frozen. At the fork on the old Ware Enfield Road, I insisted that we trade jackets, and I gave her my hat and gloves, one of which was wet from pulling her out of the water. But I figured it was better than nothing. Carrie fumbled and struggled to get out of her jacket. We had to stop walking so I, I could help her with the zipper. She fought me as I tried to get my hat over her enormous head, and with slurred speech complained that she was hot. I knew what that, I, I knew what that meant. Carrie was in trouble. If I had a cell phone back then, I'd have bitten the bullet and called her an ambulance, but I didn't get my first cell phone until 2001. I made Carrie run the west of the rest of the way, even though she moved like a drunk in an old cartoon. Fletch saw us approaching the gate, leaving the engine running, ran out to meet us. How is she? He asked, putting her armor over his shoulder. We need to get her to a hospital. Fletch and I were moving as quick as we could while dragging Carrie along between us. Do you know anyone around here? You don't know where the hospital is? I screamed as we got into the car. Why the fuck would I know where the nearest hospital in western Massachusetts is? Fletch put the car in drive and started heading towards Amherst, figuring they'd have a hospital there and we'd see signs for it on Route 9. Had we gone the other way, back towards Nashua, we'd have been at a hospital in 11 minutes. Unfortunately, the way we chose, the nearest hospital was in Northampton, over an hour away. Even with the heat on full blast, the car was freezing. Practically as soon as the doors closed, Carrie started stripping out of her clothes. You gotta get back there with her, Fletch said. He was right. 
Before our week-long winter hike, our instructor chaperones taught us what to do in the event that someone displayed any signs of hypothermia. You get them out of their wet clothes, you strip them down, and you get them into a sleeping you get into a sleeping bag with them. It's called passive rewarming, and Carrie clearly needed it. I crawled over the emergency brake into the back seat with the half-naked scary Carrie. She didn't fight me or complain about being warm, but it was difficult to get get close to her. She had wedged herself down on the floor, mostly behind the passenger seat, a space I would have never imagined could accommodate me, let alone both of us. You got a blanket back here or anything? I said, looking around to the mess and clutter that Carrie sat on top of. No, no but hang on. Fletch wrestled himself out of his jacket while he drove. It occurred to me that I, I could use the uninflated raft as a blanket, but when I looked for my duffel bag, I realized I must have dropped it somewhere between the reservoir and the car. Fletch threw his jacket back to me. It would have to do. I stripped down to my underwear. Scary Carrie was completely unresponsive. I did my best to move her into a position where I could lay next to her and drape Fletch's jacket over my shoulders and mine over our legs before spreading myself across her corpulent belly. I'd like to say I, I spent the next hour concerned only for the well-being of my friend, but that's not true. A million thoughts ran through my head. Yes, I did think about Carrie. I thought she already looked dead and hoped that at least some of her pale complexion was just the moonlight. I noticed how slow her breathing was. I could barely feel her cold gut moving at all. But I also thought about Rob and the rumor I'd repeated when I was in sixth grade. The one about how he'd been found naked in the woods with a mentally handicapped girl. I thought about how everyone said he'd tricked her into sleeping with him. And even as my friend lay beneath me, for all I knew, dying, there was a small part of me that was thankful we were so far away from home and nobody would hear about this. Shortly before 1.30 in the morning, we pulled up in front of the emergency room at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Fletch got out of the car and ran for help. Carrie was unconscious when a pair of nurses, or orderlies, or whatever they were, pulled her out of the car and put her on a stretcher. When they asked me, I couldn't remember the last time. I'd checked to see if she was still breathing. It had been a few minutes, at least. They couldn't find a pulse. Fletch and I were forced to stay in the waiting room. We couldn't do anything else for her. Carrie was in their hands now. In a way that was worse, at least f for us. When we were in the car, we had a goal, something to focus on. We had to get Carrie to a hospital. Once we'd arrived, the adrenaline that had been coursing through our veins returned to it once it came and left us with nothing but doubts. Could we have done more? Had we been fast enough? She'll be fine. She'll be fine. Fletch rocked back and forth in his chair, repeating his little mantra, as if he, he could will it to be so. She'll be fine. She'll be fine. It was over an hour before we were able to get an update. Carrie had survived, but only just. When they initially checked her vitals, Carrie's core temperature had fallen to 64 degrees Fahrenheit, and her heart rate had slowed to 29 beats per minute. For a girl Carrie's age and his size, you'd expect her resting heart rate to be in the neighborhood of 74 beats per minute. The emergency room doctor felt Carrie's hypothermia was too severe for external warming techniques and elected to irrigate Carrie's stomach and colon with a warm saline solution. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> Every 15 minutes, the saline, by then cold, had to be pumped out and replaced with more warm saline. We had hoped we'd be able to see her, but at that point, 
we'd only managed to raise her body temperature about four degrees, and Carrie was still unconscious. She also had third or fourth degree frostbite on several of her fingers and toes, and one of, one of her ankles. But they wouldn't have to worry about that tonight, there's a saying about frostbite. Frozen in January, amputated in July. What does that mean? I guess... I think it means that frostbite takes a very long time. Oh, wow. Seven months frostbite to to really deem amputation, so wow. no matter how fucked up and frostbitten her stuff is now, if they treat it, she'll probably be fine. Wow. I think. The nurse, a young homely woman, looked at us like we were criminals. I guess she'd blame, blamed us for the state Carrie was in. Even now, I'm not sure she was wrong. Is there someone your friend would want us to contact? Her mom. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I said. <laughs> I'll do it. Payphone? Follow me. The nurse turned and led me back to the admittance desk. It's funny, as, as scared as I was that my friend's life was still in serious jeopardy, somehow I was also scared to be in trouble with her mom, and by extension, mine. What can I say? My life perspective and the enormity of the situation have been fully sunk in. The nurse let me use one of the hospital's phones. What? What do you want? Why are you calling my house at three fucking o'clock in the morning? Mrs. Peterson screamed into the phone. Carrie's been in an accident. What are you talking about? Carrie's asleep. She's... Hold on. Carrie! Carrie! I could hear Mrs. Peterson lumbering through her house and, and bellowing for her daughter. Carrie! She certainly had her faults, but lacking affection for her daughter wasn't one of them. Carrie! I'd often suspected that Mrs. Peterson had been one of those sad sacks who, who had known their marriage wasn't going to last, and insisted on having a kid anyway. Not to save the marriage, but just to have one, one person in the world that loved them unconditionally. What happened? Where is she? That's so fucked up. People shouldn't be allowed to have kids. I'm just going to say it right now. I redact that statement. I redact that statement, and I put it right back into your face. It's a tug and... It's a pull. It's a push and pull, right? You shouldn't be allowed to have kids. You hear that, listener? You. Yeah, you. I'm looking and talking to you. All I told her was that her daughter had fallen through some ice. Nothing else. And emphasized at every turn... That she was alive and being cared for, which was true. But I also promised that she'd been fine. But it was a promise I had no business making. I just couldn't stomach hearing the hurt in her voice. I would have said anything to make Mrs. Peterson feel better. Nice. I would have said anything. <laughs> I handed the phone back to the homely nurse so that she could give Mrs. Peterson directions to the hospital. Two and a half hours later... Ecto-1's tires screeched to stop in the parking lot. My daughter, where is she? I could hear her even before she was through the doors. If the kids at school thought Carrie was frightening to behold, it was only because they'd never seen her mother upset. Mrs. Peterson ran up to the admittance desk wearing her jacket over her bathrobe. The sweatpants she slept in peeking out over her snowy boots. And her, her snow boots, right. Her face was red and puffy from crying and her hair looked not just uncombed, but as if someone had tied it in knots and then dipped it in grease. By comparison, the homely nurse looked like Helen of Troy. She's my daughter. You have to let me see her, Mrs. Peterson said, pounding the desk in front of her. Being a mother was the reason Mrs. Peterson got out of bed in the morning. 
It was the reason she worked a thankless, poorly paying job. And it was the reason she wasn't about to let anyone keep her from being there for being for her daughter. <clears throat> Fletch and I jogged the short distance down the hall from the waiting room. The hospital staff was looking nervously at Mrs. Peterson's red face and bulging veins. A pair of nurses moved in close behind the homely nurse to support her. You can't see her until she's been stabilized, the nurse said, her voice quivering. Mrs. Peterson let out an inarticulate scream <laughs> that shook her whole body. It was a desperate noise that sounded like a wounded animal. The home. Why does. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm pissed. <laughs> I'm pissed off because I'm, I don't want to read the homely nurse anymore. <laughs> I hate this. Hey, I hate hey, this. Hey, hey. The homely if, nurse flinched. If I, were, if I were to have one adjective for you, homely? It would be home. No! 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 The homely Tenron. I. That actually made me fucking angry. Seeing. <laughs> What is it? I'm sorry. I'm not actually, impressed with this author. I think homely means, like, you never leave home, like, kind of, like, overweight and, like, totally fine with their life, being meaningless. Is, a, is an adjective needed there? The nurse flinched. But this is, like, the third, maybe, you I think fourth. It. Take the, your own liberties, man. <laughs> I think you just want to read the nurse said instead of the homely nurse said. This is the fourth time this author has put in the homely nurse. Hey. Maybe that's the title of the story. Though. That really, that incited a reaction. I, was... I know it did. I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to skip it. God, I swear to, I swear to the homely gods. <laughs> the homely god comes down from homely Olympus and tells you to homely go fuck yourself. <laughs> uh, okay, so the nurse flinched. Fletch took an involuntary step back and one of the other nurses, who, who were also homely... <laughs> peeled off from the pack and ran down the hall, probably to get security. She needn't have bothered. After her scream, Mrs. Peterson collapsed to the floor in tears. I laid my hand on her shoulder and gave her a gentle shake. Mrs. Peterson looked up and saw it was me. I thought for a moment I'd receive the same treatment as the nurses. Instead, she pulled me down on top of her and hugged me, clinging to me like I was life itself. Mrs. Peterson buried her face in my shoulder and cried. I wish she had yelled at me, not just because my face was pressed into her hair, which smelled of sweat, deli meats, and feta cheese, but I nearly got her daughter killed. I didn't deserve to be embraced like a member of the family. Something about the way Mrs. Peterson so desperately held me reminded me of the trip her daughter and I had taken to Greenfield. I had been reckless with Carrie in so many ways. Fletch helped the two of us to our feet, and we led Mrs. Peterson back to the waiting room. We stopped at a McDonald's on the way home, but neither of us could bring ourselves to eat anything. Fletch and I had stayed at the hospital until nearly 10 a.m. By that time, Carrie's temperature had returned to normal, but at no point had she regained consciousness. We would have stayed longer, but we'd, we'd been awake for nearly 24 hours at that point. Our bodies were beginning to shut down. I left Mrs. Peterson's. I left Mrs. Peterson my parents' number told her to call me if she needed anything. She took it and thanked me for watching over her little girl. Sitting beneath the fluorescent lights, waiting for Fletch to finish his coffee, I felt like Judas minus the silver. I should have stayed at the hospital, but I copped out. I couldn't stand Mrs. Peterson being nice to me. I never should have brought you. It was the first thing Fletch had said in hours. We'd have gone anyway, I said, 
smearing ketchup around my tray with my hash brown so I wouldn't have to look him in the eyes. We'd have gone, she'd have fallen, and he wouldn't have been there to pull her out. I could have driven or I could have tried to warm her, but I couldn't have done both. Fletch didn't respond. I guess he still felt like it was his fault. She'd be dead right now, Fletch. Me too, probably. I hazarded a glance up and wished I hadn't. He was giving me the same look I had given Mrs. Peterson an hour earlier, when she thanked me for watching over Carrie. Neither of us were ready to be forgiven yet. Well, he said. We should have left after we heard those fucking bells. I couldn't argue with him there. Fletch finished his coffee in silence. After he was done, neither of us moved to get up. It was probably around 10.30 or so at that point, and neither of us had called our parents. We knew we should have found the nearest payphone. We knew we couldn't hide what, we, what had happened, and we couldn't lie. At least not about Carrie. But even if it was only for a couple of hours, we wanted to push that eventuality off for as long as possible. Our parents would know soon enough. We got back in the car and rolled down the windows, hoping the cold air would help keep Fletch awake long enough for the coffee to kick in. Fletch stopped for the light at the intersection of Amherst Road and Daniel Shays Highway. We needed to go left, which would take us north towards New Hampshire, but Fletch hadn't hit his blinker yet. Can I tell you something? Fletch had struggled to get out each word. Yeah. A part of me wants to go back. I want to hear them again. So did I. All we'd have to do is go right. Do you... If we did, do you think we could get there by 11? I asked. The light changed. We didn't move until the car behind us started honking. Fletch hit the, hit the blinker, we went left. My cheeks burned with shame. And we probably wouldn't have made it in time. I said. We can't. We can't. We can't go back there, not ever. No. Never. But even as I said it, I knew I would. The bells felt like home. Interesting. I, uh, I feel bad for Carrie, mostly because I felt like the story needed more bullet fodder for the woman in black that I want to happen. Um, if it's just Fletch and, uh, or if it's just the narrator. If it's just the narrator being haunted for the rest of the story, I'm gonna feel like it's bedtime all over again, and I'm probably gonna get disappointed. Because bedtime was a ghost haunting story about a kid. That, that Gestalt and I read. Mm. Um, first part's often awesome because uh, he's a kid and he doesn't understand all these ghost things. And then the second part is he's an adult and he does research and it's boring and sucks. So, um, I don't know. I want this kid to be fucking haunted. Yeah. <laughs> I want his. Uh, I want his hubris to come back and, and haunt him, if anything. You know, Carrie should die, and he should blame himself. <laughs> like, you know, make it harder on this kid because uh, they're taking it easy on him right now. The plot is, yeah. the plot is taking it easy on him. Anything to say? Um, I don't know. I, I guess I just personally, I, I, I guess I just, I don't really know how to explain it. I just don't vibe with the way this is written. That's totally cool. Because uh, he used the word homely like way too many times for my personal, you know, 
there, there's that. That's like a really, really specific thing. It, it just, I don't know. It's like, um, I don't know. Well, you've you felt this way ever since part one. Maybe it has to do with... He has a very matter-of-fact way of writing. The narration is, um, it's present with what he's experiencing. Sure. So, he, there are some, like, oddly, like, it is, right? Am I, am I wrong? No. This narration is, is, the narration takes place the same time that he's experiencing everything. Yes. So, there's, like, there's, like, weird omniscience, in a way. Well, because the story to, this guy, this, this, uh, the story opened with him saying this happened, like, seven years ago. That beginning thing was written or stated by this narrator? Yeah. Oh. He said, he said, this story didn't just happen to me, but I feel the need to talk about it now. This Uh happened a couple years ago, and that's how the story starts. I I wish the narration honored that. A little bit more? Well, honored that the narrator is talking about this seven years later. I think there are little bits that poke out. Yeah. there. Like, when she fell in the ice, he was like, I didn't even hear it crack, honestly. Like, I don't even remember it cracking. I just turned around and she was gone. You know, like, it's very, um, in the back of your mind. It's not very, and this and this and this and then, you know, I, I'm not gonna say I dislike the way it's written, I just understand why it feels off for you. Yeah. And I get that. I think, um, my experience reading shit on the show, um... I've read all types of shit, you know, uh, bed- Bedtime was not written well, but there was a lot of horrifying moments that were written well, so mm-hmm. it's hard to kind of, it's hard to kind of judge a story when you're not done with it yet. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll give it that. Um. Cause your part, again, was kind of just like, blue balls, you know, as blue as Scary Carrie's lips. <laughs> yeah. Because it's like they were right there. They were right but there. But they, they didn't get there. I was interested. When I, I am interested. When they turned around, I was like, oh boy. <laughs> we can't go back. I'm gonna go back. <laughs> that's the right, story. It's kind of like pandering to the audience. Well, that's no sleep for you. Yeah. That's that's no, that's no the creepypasta way. There wouldn't be a story if they didn't go back. Or, or well, no, didn't no go back. I don't have a problem with him going back or him thinking it. But the way it was... The way it was written was just, uh, no, never. But even as I said it, I knew I would. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would do it anyway. <laughs> Part six. My homely parents woke up on the morning of December 28th, <laughs> 1999, to a quiet home. Nothing unusual about that. They were homely. <laughs> Fuck. God damn it. They were typically the first ones up. My mother made coffee and my father turned on CNN and got on the treadmill. My brother woke up next and my mother made him French toast. She made some for me as well, figuring I could reheat it whenever I came down. It was a couple of hours before my absence was felt. No big deal. They figured it was vacation. They might as well let me sleep in. Then around 11 o'clock, they got a call from Mr. Fletcher. He was in a bad mood. Did Nathan stay over at your house last night? I don't think so. Well, if he did, wake his ass up and tell him he's in trouble. My mom covered the receiver with her hand and hollered for my dad to go wake me up. That's when they found out I was missing. 
When Fletch and I showed up in the driveway two hours later, I'd say my parents were more annoyed than angry. My parents weren't strict disciplinarians. I'd slept over at Drew DeLuca's without consulting them on more than one occasion, and while they were never exactly thrilled with me, they trusted my judgment and preferred letting me exercise that judgment to being woken up by a late night phone call looking for their permission. When they found my bed empty, they had figured we'd stayed up late playing video games or, at worst, watching Skinamax movies over at some friends or another's and were just too tired to drive home. Fletch's parents weren't so understanding. They'd called everyone Fletch was friends with, then called my parents looking for the name of my friends. Nathan, you better get your butt home, my dad said. Then he held his thumb and forefinger up about an inch apart and added, Your dad sounds like he's about this close to going through the phone, phone book in alphabetical order looking for you. He was trying to be funny, but Fletch and I weren't in much of a mood to laugh. We exchanged one last tired look, both knowing things we were going to get much worse before they got any better and parted ways. I stood on the front two steps of my house, and my uh, father watching Fletch drove off down the road. Boy, <laughs> am I glad I'm not with him right now. My dad said. He didn't know the half of it. Dad, we, uh... I have to tell you something. They didn't yell and they didn't scream, but the days of my parents trusting my judgment were over. I had stayed out all night without permission, driven deep into another state, and gone out into unfamiliar, recently frozen ice in the middle of the night. That was stupid. That was so stupid. My father got up from the table and headed for the phone. He'd never been good at sitting still when he was agitated. Why were you even in Amherst? We wanted to visit Sam, I mumbled. I'd been a particularly good liar, but Fletch and I had agreed to leave Rob's suicide notes and the spire in the woods out of our story. Fletch was convinced that if his dad caught even the faintest whiff that his son believed in ghost stories, he'd be stuck on meds as fast as the nearest psychiatrist could write the prescription. And my mom stared straight at me. I couldn't hold her gaze and pretended to be interested in the French toast she reheated for me. That could have been you. Do you understand? That could have been you that fell through the ice, and with no one around. My mom was too choked up to finish her thought. I wanted to comfort her, but I didn't want her to look at me. Yes, you have to. You have a patient there named Carrie? My dad stuck the phone under his chin and asked, What's Carrie's last name? While my dad was concerned for Carrie, he was also motivated by self-interest. I could hear it in his voice. He had spent the first ten years of his career working in litigation at the law firm of Ropes and Gray and believed in the importance of CYA, covering your ass. It didn't matter how slim the chances were that Mrs. Peterson would attempt to hold our family or the Fletchers accountable for what happened to her daughter. That risk was unacceptable. If you need any help, he said once he'd gotten Mrs. Peterson on the phone. You know, around the house, driving Carrie to school... He was feeling her out, trying to get a sense of whether or not Mrs. Peterson blamed us for what had happened to her daughter. Maybe dealing with the insurance company, or hell, I don't know. If you need a little help with the medical bills, whatever you need, just say the word. He also wanted to dangle that carrot 
he knew Mrs. Peterson wouldn't be able to cover Carrie's emergency medical care out of pocket, and he doubted slicing meat at the deli counter in the market basket conferred with it amazing health insurance. Mrs. Peterson would need help, but it would come with strings attached. Looking back at my father's actions, they seem cold, and maybe they were, but isn't protecting their kids what good fathers do? Don't they protect their children, even when their children don't particularly want to be protected? Had Mrs. Peterson a vengeful bone in her body, I'd have deserved the brunt of everything she could muster. Despite my exhaustion, I had trouble falling asleep. I'd kept thinking about Carrie. She was in the hospital and it was my fault. I hadn't talked her into anything, but I had involved her. I brought her along and now she was the one lying in a hospital bed with her mother crying over her. As a Catholic, you're taught that God created us as rational beings. You're taught that he, capital he, gave us the dignity <laughs> to initiate and control our own actions. That capital he imbued us with the ability to hold our own counsel. Amen, so, brother. So that we may choose our own paths, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> and capital that we he alone is good. are responsible for the fruit that our choices bear. Amen. I didn't believe that everything was a part of a plan, and the people that did, the people who saw God's hand in every mundane, earthly event, from athletes who credit Jesus for their ability to hit a curveball, to teenagers invoking the name of the Lord to secure a date on the Saturday night, drove me crazy. I had never accepted predestination. How could we have free will if, like clockwork, everything was preordained to happen? I believed these things, I did, but lying there, thinking of the Petersons, I couldn't stop myself from wondering if God was teaching me a lesson. I'd been taught that God doesn't cause car accidents or tornadoes, but in that moment I felt that God had broken the ice beneath Carrie's feet to punish me for both doubting his existence and having stolen a glimpse of the secret knowledge no one but God was meant to have. I cried and whispered Hail Marys and Our Fathers to myself until I was finally overtaken by exhaustion. Dim light filtered in through my blinds, the window in my room faced south and in my semi-conscious state, I wasn't sure if the sun was rising or setting. My stomach growled, but I couldn't bring myself to get out of bed and face my parents. Bells tolled. I sat bolt upright in my bed. The room was silent and still, and yet I could hear the bells as they continued to call out the hour. Two, three, they were beautiful, but I didn't lose myself in them as I had on the shores of the Quabbin. Four, they sounded like a song stuck in your head. Five, they stopped. I was still lying in bed. Either I had never sat up or had lain back down without realizing it. Had I heard them, or had I remembered them at the reservoir, we'd heard them till eleven. Had it just been a dream? I sat up for what may have been the second time, and looked at my clock. It was five. In the past two days, I'd only slept for three hours, but I couldn't handle being alone in the dark. I went downstairs and spent the rest of the night studiously avoiding eye contact with my family. Thankfully, I didn't hear the bells again that night. The next morning, bright and early, my father drove me over to Carrie's house. My parents had put together a care package for Mrs. Peterson, a large basket filled with food so that she wouldn't have to cook 
gift cards from our local gas station to offset the back and forth to the hospital each day, and a few books to read in the waiting room. When she opened the door, Mrs. Peterson was so grateful that she cried. Once she regained her composure, the two of us got into the Ecto-1 and headed out on the two-and-a-half-hour drive to Cooley Dickinson Hospital. My dad had volunteered me to go and keep Mrs. Peterson company. He may have had an ulterior motive, but this was something I wanted to do. Something I had to do. The drive was awkward. Under the best of circumstances as a teenager, spending time alone with one of your friend's parents was always a little uncomfortable, and these were far from the best of circumstances. As I learned on the drive, Carrie was in a coma. Although Mrs. Peterson got virtually none of the medical terms correct, her only real exposure to medicine came from having watched a lot of ER, I managed to get the gist of what she was saying. As Carrie's heart rate slowed, so had her breathing. Her blood had failed to supply her brain with the oxygen it needed to run, and it was this lack of oxygen that probably contributed more to Carrie's blue coloration than her body temperature. The doctors had given Mrs. Peterson only one tiny piece of good news. Because hypothermia lowers the body's metabolism, it reduces the likelihood that the oxygen deprivation had damaged Carrie's brain. That was it. That was what pinning all her hopes on. That the cold, which nearly killed her, had also slowed her brain down enough that it wasn't noticed it was suffocating. When we arrived at the hospital, Carrie's mom led me to her new room. I could tell from the looks the staff were giving her along the way that Mrs. Peterson was not their favorite person. Maybe she'd been a pain in the ass the day before, but it didn't feel like that was it, not exactly. The nurses were giving Mrs. Peterson the same looks the kids at school gave her daughter. In movies and television, people frequently comment on how peaceful coma patients appear. They say, it's like they're asleep, they look like an angel, or it reminds me of when they were a baby and I used to hold them. I don't know if that was Mrs. Peterson's impression, but it certainly wasn't mine. Ordinarily, Carrie wore a lot of concealer to cover up her acne. At some point between plunging beneath the ice and having saline pumped in and out of her stomach, most of it had disappeared. She had a tube running into her nose, though I'm not sure why, a heart rate monitor on her finger and an IV in her arm. And that was to say nothing of the frostbite. Along with the big toe on her right foot, and most of her left foot below the ankle, which we couldn't see beneath the blanket, ice crystals had formed in two fingers on her left hand and the thumb on her right. The blood trapped in her fingers swelled almost to the same thickness as her wrists. They were red and raw. It was difficult not to stare at them. Mrs. Peterson believed that even in a coma, Carrie could hear us and proceeded to relive seemingly every moment of her daughter's life. Mrs. Peterson was not a gifted storyteller. In her mind, nothing was too trivial from the time she caught Carrie washing the dishes with cold water, which is apparently something you shouldn't do, to the time they went to Applebee's for her birthday and both forgot to tell the server, then wondered why they didn't get cake. But what her stories lacked in content, Mrs. Peterson made up for in sentiment. She couldn't touch Carrie's hands, so she held her daughter's upper arm as she spoke. 
I'm sorry I'm not home more. I'd like to be. I would. I know how hard school's been for you. Maybe it'd have been easier if I was home more. I don't know. But you've done so good, baby. And college is right there. If Carrie was able to hear her mother, it wasn't outwardly apparent. Her face didn't twitch, her eyelids didn't flutter, even her pulse on the heart rate monitor held steady. Remember, in middle school, you... You never thought. As Mrs. Peterson began to break down, she grabbed my wrist and pulled me to her daughter's bedside, forcing my hands to replace hers on Carrie's arm. You never thought you'd get a boy to like you. But look who's here. My cheeks burned. I didn't know if Carrie had told her mother we were dating or if Mrs. Peterson had just gotten the wrong idea about us, but either way, I couldn't correct her. Not here. I had enough trouble rejecting Carrie when we were alone in Greenfield. The thought of rejecting her again, this time in front of her mother, and stealing from Mrs. Peterson whatever sense of pride she derived from her daughter having a romantic life, she was... It was more than I could bear. There's a special place in hell for people who humiliate children in front of their parents. I was very aware of my hands resting on her arms. She was so much warmer than the last time I'd touched her. I've never been quick on my feet. I had no idea what to say, especially with Mrs. Peterson thinking I was Carrie's, what, boyfriend? I took a page out of Mrs. Peterson's playbook and stood over my unconscious friend and recounted meeting her on the hike and a few anecdotes from class. I tried to muster up something more sentimental, but it wasn't until I pretended it was Alina laying there in front of me that any words came. I can't stop thinking about you. I wish we could talk. I'd do anything to make you better. Lost in the little scene I had created for myself, I leaned down and kissed Carrie's waxy forehead. Mrs. Peterson put her arms around me and squeezed. I looked at the tears in her eyes and wondered if I'd done her a kindness by playing along. The lie seemed harmless enough. Carrie probably just wanted to save face with her mom, maybe make her proud, let her think her child was happy for a change, but eventually the truth would come out. I wasn't attracted to Carrie. It'd be nice if I was, but I wasn't. I also resented being blindsided. If Carrie had asked my permission, had said, look, this is embarrassing, especially after Greenfield, but I need your help making my mom happy. Is it okay if I tell her you're my boyfriend? I might have said yes, but she hadn't. The whole charade made me feel gross. Alina's family returned from Shawnee the following morning. I would have liked to have been outside their house waiting for her when they arrived, but I was still a month away from getting my driver's license. And my parents weren't exactly in the mood to help advance my social life. I left a message on the Amini's machine in the morning around 10. I called again at noon and 1, but hung up both times before the machine began recording. It was the strange poker game you play when you're in love for the first time. You feel like you'll die if you don't speak to the object of your affection as soon as possible, but you knew how crazy you'd seem if you filled up their answering machine with increasingly redundant messages. That afternoon felt like an eternity. She called me back shortly after five, and even though I was sitting directly next to the phone, I let it ring twice so she wouldn't know I'd been sitting directly next to the phone. I miss you. 
thanks. She sounded tired. Maybe she hadn't gotten that much sleep before driving home, or maybe she was drained from therapy. Either way, it wasn't exactly the reaction I was hoping for. I wasn't sure what I wanted to tell her about my trip to the Quabbin, or rather, I wasn't sure how to tell her. The whole idea of going was to alleviate her guilt. Having heard the bells, I knew that the story was at least partially true. There was more to the spire in the woods than the side effects of an antidepressant. But I also knew that Alina wouldn't take the news of Carrie very well. For that matter, I wasn't taking it all that great either. How was Maine? Too short. I'm trying to convince my parents to drive us back up. If not tonight, then tomorrow. But my dad's sick of driving. Hmm. I wanted to tell her everything, but it had to be face to face. If she took it hard, I couldn't comfort her from halfway across town. Not properly. There was a long silence as I weighed my options. When she broke the silence, her voice sounded small and young and, and distant. Homely. And homely. Did you... Did you find the widower's clock? I... Um... Do you think you could come over tonight after my parents go to sleep? There was another silence, though not as long as the last one. Why? It's... Well, it's not really the sort of thing you tell someone over the phone. I stood by my window looking out the front lawn, its yellow grass illuminated by a couple of our tackier Christmas decorations. The wind shook the dead branches of the tree that grew next to our driveway. Something about the scene reminded me of the quabbin and the sound the ice makes when it's quiet. It was nearly midnight, and I wondered if Carrie would dream of the bells. Being in a coma might not be so bad if they sounded as lovely in sleep as they did in real life. There have been times in my past when I've been lonely, and considered the virtue of trading the world for a lifetime of dreams. Today, I'd make that trade in a heartbeat if it meant never hearing the bells again. Headlights flashed into my window, interrupting my thoughts as Alina pulled her little beetle into my driveway. I crept downstairs to meet her, despite everything that had happened in the last couple days, I couldn't help but feel excited. She was shivering when I opened the door, and didn't appear to have showered that day, but she looked beautiful, yeah. framed as she was by the Christmas lights surrounding our door, and with the porch light behind her head casting a glow around her. It was like she was separated from everything dark and dead outside. I hugged her. She hadn't worn a jacket, just the sweats she probably slept in during the winter. She stood stiffly as I rubbed her back and arms in an effort to warm her. I, I, feel, like, I feel like, sorry to interrupt, I feel like the entire story has been up to yeah. this, point, this point of them this having a romantic spot. evening. Let's get, I figured I, she was nervous her, about yeah. what I'd tell her but was still disappointed she hadn't greeted me more enthusiastically. It's because she doesn't want to fuck you, dude. Like, like, take a fucking note, right? I'm like, so glad we're how, at this point of so much detail. And of, of how her. many, like, how many, like, warning signs do you need that, like, she just isn't into you? He needs more. Like, there have been, like, seven red flags. He needs more. He likes it. <laughs> he likes not knowing. 
Oh, he likes he likes being an animal. <laughs> I let her into the kitchen and set about making us a couple of mugs of instant hot chocolate. Oh. Alina leaned against the aisle behind me, but that didn't last for very long. Before I'd even gotten the mugs into the microwave, she was pacing and chewing nervously at her lower lip. So what happened? I handed her a mug. Do you want to sit? No. No, I sat enough today. I brought her into the den, which was further away from my parents' room. The embers in my father's wood stove still glowed brightly, and I added a couple of small pieces of kindling. Please, please tell me what you found. I told her. I told her everything. How cold it was, what Carrie had Fletch had been like, what the smell of the smoke reminded me of. I told her about the sound the ice made, and I told her about the bells. They were heavenly. But it it wasn't just the sound. They fed something inside of me, you know, that part of you, that voice in your head that kind of experiences what's happening and sees through your eyes. She was looking at me as I spoke, and I could almost see the part of her I was talking about behind her eyes, like the soul or whatever. It was like the bells enveloped it and gave it everything it ever wanted. Everything that it was missing. For me, it was you. It was a bit embarrassing describing to her how the bells had reminded me of what it felt like to lie beneath her, but how else could I have conveyed the contentment in their presence and the need in their absence, the bliss and the longing? It was romantic, I thought. What could be more flattering for Alina to hear than my admission that my purest desire was to lie close to her, to feel her body against mine, that it had quieted my soul? But she didn't react as though she were flattered. Alina stared straight into the stove at the flames consuming the wood and said nothing. It took me a moment to realize what she was probably thinking. She was... Also, what Rob heard in the bells, what quieted his soul. She was his bliss and longing, even if she never wanted to be. We sat in the silence for a long time and watched the wood burn. Then I told her about how we had pressed on and about what had happened to Carrie. Even though it wasn't her fault, I knew Alina would blame herself for Carrie's falling through the ice, just like she had blamed herself for Rob's suicide. It was sort of negative feedback loop a person gets into when they're depressed. Everything's their fault. What I hadn't considered was how much I'd blamed myself. Beyond answering a few of my parents' questions about how Mrs. Peterson was doing, I hadn't told anyone about my return trip to the hospital. For that matter, I hadn't really told anyone how I felt seeing Carrie turning blue or struggling to warm her up on the floor of Fletch's car. Telling Alina and about it opened up the floodgates inside me. Alina let me speak until I couldn't get any more words out. Then she slid along the couch to my side, wrapped me in her arms, and held me like a child. For a moment, I felt ashamed. I had never judged other guys for crying. I had sat beside Fletch when he was overcome by grief, but this was different. Carrie hadn't died, and I was with Alina, who I wanted more than anything to think of me as a man. I felt so small. She ran her hand up and down my back. Little by little, I became more 
aware of her and her closeness to me than I was of my emotions. My face was cradled against her neck, my cheek brushed hers as I moved to look up at her, her eyes looked as though she had been crying too. I kissed her, <laughs> and it was like the first time with her lips slow to respond. Mm. What the fuck are we reading? Slowly, mm. 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 slowly we inched our way back onto the couch until I was lying on top of her. It felt like the bells. Mm. Homely. <laughs> my hand traced its ways down her arms and over her shirt. My pulse <gasps> beat faster than it had ever before. Wait a minute. What if this is still the bells? The bells. I was acutely aware of my body, how it felt, where it was in relation to Alina's, but had lost all conscious thought, aware of nothing but touch and pulse. I slid my hands beneath her clothes. She didn't stop me. Her sweatpants came down easily. She trembled. She was nervous. So was I. My hands shook as I took my own pants down. I'd never exposed myself to anyone. Her face was inscrutable. I don't feel right describing the details of her body. We were kids then. I'm an adult now. I didn't know what I was doing then. I know now. It was my first time. I don't know if it was hers. We don't exactly talk these days. It was short and fumbling and awkward, but I thought at the time that it was divine. Afterwards, I didn't want her to leave, but she got dressed anyway. She was shaking as she pulled up her pants and crying by the time she reached the door. I thought maybe she was scared because we hadn't used a condom or that it was her survivor's guilt. I was wrong. Hey, hey, you... She was reluctant to let me hug her. It's okay. We didn't do anything wrong. She said yeah and ran her hand back through her wild hair, not to get it out of her face, but like you would if you didn't know the answer on a test. After she left, I stood at the window for a long time, staring out into the night at the place where the taillights disappeared. I didn't sleep easily that night. I felt like I should have been more excited than I was. A lifetime of coming-of-age movies and pop culture had led me to believe I'd feel somehow different about myself and the world, but I didn't. The view from my bed looked exactly as it had the night before. Carrie was still in the hospital, and far from restoring Alina to her former self, consummating our relationship had left her as unhappy as ever. I tried to imagine a future with Alina, one where I made her as happy as she made me, but I only wound up thinking about the bells. Maybe she needed to hear them. I fell asleep shortly before three in the morning, which unbeknownst to me was almost exactly when Carrie woke up screaming. I'd love to tell you what Carrie's first words were, unfortunately, I can't. When her heart had slowed down and an area of her brain located beneath her left temple hadn't received enough oxygen, essentially she'd had a stroke which left her with a condition called expressive aphasia. She could make sounds. That was no problem. And with effort, she could say words. But she couldn't form sentences. Of course, Mrs. Peterson and I didn't know that when she picked me up the morning of New Year's Eve. All we knew was that Carrie was awake. 
Mrs. Peterson shook with laughter as we drove down 495. She was going so fast I thought the Ecto-1 was going to disintegrate like one of those experiment jet planes you see in old stock footage. Carrie's mom, beaming with pride, clapped her hand down on my knee and said, Boy, I will tell you, you got yourself one tough girl. I smiled back at her, I honestly did. Thinking Carrie was essentially out of the woods, I was thrilled, but I didn't know what else to say, or maybe I was too busy worrying that now that she was awake, Carrie might not be quick enough on the uptake to figure out what was going on, and her mom would realize her relationship was a lie. I wouldn't have worried had I realized how severe Carrie's aphasia was. Mrs. Peterson was humming arithmically as we pulled into the parking lot. She walked into the hospital with a spring in her step. She looked at the nurses like they were old friends or comrades in arms, as if to say, We've been through some rough times together, but now that that's all behind us and I couldn't have made it without you. But she couldn't be bothered to stop and speak to any of them. They look in Mrs. Peterson's eyes, and the spring in her step lasted until we reached Carrie's door. Mom, boy, dad, arm, wrist, bad, wrist, mom, wrist, mom, medicine, homely, rest, missed, homely, Her speech wrist. was labored. I could see her struggling with each syllable. <laughs> Mrs. Peterson Sorry. told me to... Why am I laughing? <laughs> Why am I laughing? Mrs. Peterson told me to... Go get a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> In that simple sentence, I could literally hear the happiness drain from inside her. The woman who had practically skipped down the hospital's corridors deflated as she took her place by my by her daughter's side. I think what I feel the worst about, at least in regards to Carrie, I saw coming in that moment. In most regards, Mrs. Peterson wasn't much of a person. She wasn't smart, and she didn't have much of a sense of a humor. And she didn't have much of a sense of humor. She'd never been a great conversationalist or within a stone's throw of attractive. She was dirt poor and her personal hygiene left a lot to be desired. In most ways, she was society's definition of a failure. But there was an air of grace in the resigned way she stepped to her daughter's bedside. Yes, what little light she had left in her life seemed dimmer. All the hopes she'd had for her daughter had been snuffed out, but she wasn't going anywhere. She was going to shoulder the load and give her daughter everything she could. I tell myself that, accident or not, Carrie and I would have drifted apart anyway during college. After all, even if her aphasia had fully dissipated, there's no way we would have gone to the same school. But the truth is that after that morning, I never could stand to be in the same room as Carrie. Every time she stammered or shifted her weight on her crutches, it filled me with a self-loathing, and I couldn't take it. I went to the nurse's station. They told me they'd have to call in a doctor with a background in neurology. About a half hour or so later, Dr. Walsh stepped into Carrie's room. I don't remember much about him other than that. He had silver hair, and his bedside manner could be charitably described as detached. Hospital man, doctor, arm, bad nurse. She wants another painkiller, he said. She's probably going to lose that hand. Mrs. Peterson asked Dr. Walsh why her daughter couldn't speak properly, and he explained to us what they'd expected to find once they gave Carrie a CT scan. 
See, people always talk about how we don't use more than 2 or 10 or 12% of our brain, but that's a load of crap. We use all of it, and because every part of it has certain tasks and functions associated with it, even a small injury can cause very serious and pronounced effects, like Carrie's expressive aphasia. It didn't affect any other aspect of her cognition. She probably even knew what she wanted to say, but she couldn't get the words out. Now, luckily, Dr. Walsh said, the brain is fairly elastic. So given time, some of the undamaged area surrounding the affected region could compensate. She could regain her normal speech. Aphasia isn't uncommon in stroke victims, and we often see a full recovery within a year. Throughout our conversation with Dr. Walsh, Carrie would attempt to interject. If it seemed like she needed something or was asking a question, we would try to figure out what she was saying. Otherwise, Mrs. Peterson would just stroke her daughter's hair until she settled back down. Mostly, Carrie seemed concerned with pain from her frostbite, but just as Dr. Walsh was excusing himself, she said something. Or shouted, really, that made my hair stand on end. Here, here, sounds ring, 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 ring. Then she fell silent. Mrs. Peterson looked up at Dr. Walsh. What does she want? Dr. Walsh took out a small flashlight and shined it into Carrie's eyes, and her pupils were unresponsive. She uh, may also have damaged her auditory cortex. We'll know more once we get her, get her scanned. I glanced down at my watch. It had just turned ten. So we didn't make it to the spire. Maybe I was reading the wrong chapter. But hey... I wouldn't say that was filler, because uh, Carrie's pretty fucked for the rest of her life and as a character, Yep. which is detrimental to the story for my purposes, because I want some goddamn carnage. <laughs> we're not getting it. You don't think so? No, You're we're putting getting... the buck down right now. We're not. It's not happening. Um, well, I don't know. I really don't know what this uh, story is attempting to do. Make us... It's weird. High school horny? He has alluded to his survival as a narrator. He has alluded to Alina's survival, saying we don't talk anymore. Carrie's. And he has alluded to Carrie's as saying we never would have continued, you know, talking anyway. But Fletch is the only person kind of out in the wind right now who I think could also be a victim. Um... There also might just be a twist that he's, like, this kid's dead. So you never know. Like, they might plot holes us right now. Um, True. Fuck. I really wanted to get to the spire. I'm, I'm like, sitting here, like... You know, I had a hope. Blue I, balls. When you were when you were, you were reading the, the sex scene between him and oh. Alina, mm. which, oh yeah, Ooh. this is why I'm reading <clears throat> in It's general. pretty accurate, actually. First, first time was very awkward for me. But what I was hoping for was that... It would, it would be in the midst of him having sex with her, and then he would be back out on the river. <laughs> yeah, like, the bells were making him think that. Yeah. Like, like the bliss had put him in a, like, a zombie state. Yeah. Yeah, that would have been cool. And maybe, maybe he had woken back up, and, like, Fletch and Carrie and him were, like, on the other side of the river, but they had dragged Carrie to the other side of the river and Carrie was dead and Fletch was like dude wake up snap out of it 
I I personally also would have liked it more if they had continued on and sacrificed Carrie as a character because she's kind of pointless to us now anyway. Um, at least then they would have gotten to the bells sooner and we would have. I mean, we can't sit here and just say make it make it go there yes, now. You're right. Like we can't you're right. because that's Jaws. You know, like Jaws wanted to show the shark a lot. The animatronic just fucked up. You know, Spielberg ended up only showing it in the last ten minutes through fucking sheer dumb luck. And it made people like the movie so much more because you had to sit through a hard-boil fucking two hours of, like, minimalist shark attacks where you the most you see is a fucking fin. Yep. And, like... It feels like that. The bells feel like that. I can see what Spielberg's gonna do with this movie. But at the same time, it's like... We're on... That That was part six. And we're still not having anything to do with the spire. You know? It's called the spire in the woods. Are we ever gonna get there? <laughs> you know? Are we ever gonna reach the spire? Who knows? That's That's where we're at right now. Um, I wouldn't say I hated it, but I can see the kind of... He still has this matter-of-fact thing about him, like, now that I'm an adult, I know everything, so yeah. let me explain this to you, you fucking children. Like, he knows he's writing to no sleep, you know? He's just like... He's like, well, aphasia is when your head in the stroke part, and it's like, oh, fuck off, just... Let it happen. Just say that she didn't speak well. Stop being a fucking scientist. Um, how, do, how do you feel? That's exactly what I've, I've been having an issue well, with. Well, we've, we've been saying that the past two parts, though. It's we've just been, too much. He's very matter-of-fact. It's he's like, this story is too long. <laughs> too much. <laughs> too, it's too, too long. long. We're going to have to go through one more part of filler, and parts 9 and 10 are going to deal with the spire, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Or the spire's just going to be bullshit. Maybe. This story is very long. Maybe it's on a greatest hits list as a joke. Well, it might be on people's greatest hits list. And, and this realization came to me the other day, too. If you were to sit down and read Bedtime straight through, you'd probably think it's terrifying. Because it's a kid and then an adult both talking about the same events that drove them crazy. Okay. With ghosts. I read that story two weeks apart from part one and part two. I thought the kids' stuff was great. The way they wrote, like, how a kid thought, the way the ghosts treated the kid, the the screaming down the hallway that they would just elicit. It was scarier than paranormal activity for me. Like, a realistic way to represent ghosts. Just saying that it felt like someone was in your bed, but not having the right words to describe it. I found that haunting. In Bedtime Part 2, he's an adult, and he's researching where he had these experiences as a kid, and it demystifies it, and then when he runs back into the same ghosts, it's almost bullshit, because he's not scared of them anymore. Yeah. It's very, I'm an adult now, and I'm mad. You know, he almost, um... It's, like, revealed to be, like, a demon, and he, um, like, exercises it by himself. It's like, it's complete bullshit. So part one is just all this setup, all this context, but it also has a really interesting 
development of this kid dealing with supernatural shit. Whereas right now, all that we have is context and development, and we don't have this kid dealing with any supernatural shit. So if someone were to read this story, which now we have to ballpark at being three hours of reading, six, seven and a half hour long read, someone probably reads this in two days, back to back, right? Yeah. You know, they're sitting at work, they read it on their lunch break, they read it when they get home, they finish it the next night. That's probably a lot scarier, because you're getting through all the filler and you're working like a train going in a direction towards a kind of build-up, where we, where we as podcasters and, and, you know, slower readers are taking in an episode at a time because I've kind of laid it out this way. So we're allowed to be hypercritical because we're looking at everything very singularly. Good point. But we also still can't quite judge the whole, and I have to take back a lot of things I've said about other series as feeling very bland. Um, but at the same time, I have to say, you know, bland writing is just bland writing. Yes. You know, it, if, if I'm feeling the very know-it-all, matter-of-fact way that he's writing, and it's perf- you know, persisted for the last three parts and I'm no longer interested, that's not my fault as a reader. That's the writer's fault as a writer. So, I absolutely see what you're saying. I just kind of wish it would get a move on already. And do you think we're, do you think we're getting there? Uh, no. It's like, it's like, I know, I can tell you for a fact, I read a part in this story where the narrator is in the spire. I thought it was this part, but it's probably next part. Okay. I don't want to say it again because, like, I'm going to have to go back and change the cover art for this episode because it had nothing to do with the woman. But it's still just like. Well, I know they get to it eventually, so when the fuck is it going to happen? Yeah. Um, which, again, makes me more excited for the next part than I am about the part I just read. So. Well, we'll see. You know, we're back in the same spot from last episode, essentially. We'll which, see. Which isn't bad, but it's not better. You know, I'm I'm being a little bitch. About yeah. <laughs> I'm being a little bitch. About I agree. It. I agree. I mean, it better be starting some. I think my expectations are starting to put me awry. I'm I'm starting to react like my father waiting in a two hour long ride in Disney World, wondering why all the kids are there. <laughs> Completely unreasonable. <laughs> well, this is a park for children and families. Yeah, well, they all should go home. <laughs> I agree with him. I don't want to wait. <laughs> I hate lions. I don't want to wait. I want the ghost action to start. I just hate homely people. <laughs> this is brought to you by the Homely Network, where you can purchase the Homely Magazine subscription for only seven ninety nine every month, where you could review the Homely Magazine with Tenron Otrin. Well, this has been lots of homely. <laughs> Homely pasta. <laughs> this has been homely pasta. <laughs> oh, where the frights are only as homely as you let them be. That was a sentence. Well, I agree with that homely. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. That was also a sentence. <laughs> but am I agreeing with the homely, or is it am I using it as an adverb? <laughs> I am homely agreeing. <laughs> it's an adverb. <laughs> Weed, you wouldn't believe, and I get more.